break. Amazing? Why amazing? What were you doing in Chicago? That's good. Did you go look at the um, Anish Kapoor globe? Um, I looked at the bin and then I went to the shadow curry and I saw Anaconda. But you didn't see anything from source code? No. Oh, well. Actually, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, why else go to Chicago, really? So I have the uh, dreadful cold that some of you have been complaining about. Um, just so you know. I don't know why you need to know, but now you know. Um, all right, we should talk about what you want to do for um, your final exam thing. Um, we, what we had decided, <laughs> you give him that smile, um, and you are. Uh, you guys decided um, when we voted on it last time, but um, the, the slim minority that lost um, felt like they weren't happy that they lost. Um, that you uh, wanted both take-home midterm and final. Do we still want that? Do you want to take-home final? So you don't just want to quiz in class like a true or false. This was a good class, true or false. Um, you either get a 100 or a 0. Okay, well, I gave you the choice. You decided you wanted to do a take-home. Okay, um, so should we take a vote, or is this I, I or nay? How many people want to take-home? Okay, how many people don't? All right, good. That's what we'll do. Yeah, thank you. In terms of clicks, like, I thought the clips were really awesome and super helpful. Uh-huh. Did other people feel that sentiment? Okay, so you want bad clips this time? Is that what you're saying? Okay, so did, pe did people like the um, clips version of the exam? Um, anyone, anyone not? Okay. All right, that's what we'll do. Um, so there'll be a take home, and when? So it's going to be the the same two hour deal. Um, that is, you'll have, I guess. Um, does a forty eight hour window sound right? Yep. Um, okay, I'm doing really well here. Um, and did any of you, let me, I ask this merely for information, did any of you actually watch any of the movies, which was one of the possibilities last time? Um, that is, what I said you could do if you wanted was actually watch through an entire movie that one of the clips was from and give yourself whatever extra time you needed to do that. How many people did that? Uh, what did you watch? Uh, I watched, uh, what's the dream song? <laughs> yeah. yeah. OK, good. And it stuck with you. Um, <laughs> And someone else's hand was up? Yeah, what did you watch? Uh-huh. Okay, so, well, good. That's useful. And, yeah? So, I also watched Inception, but it was, like, my fourth time watching it. It was more, like, I wanted to watch Inception. But yeah. It was worth it, so. Okay, so would you like another Inception clip so you could watch it again? Okay, I'll... I, I will see what I can do. Okay, so, um... What we'll do then... is um, give you a 48-hour window. If you want to watch one of the movies, um, that's fine. That's one reason for you to have 48 hours. Um, but the actual um, exam part of the exam, uh, once you've watched the clips, give yourself no more than two hours to write. That seemed like um, you guys could write reasonable things in two hours. Um, obviously, uh, not totally spectacularly great. Um, but it was also useful for us to be able to see how many people wrote their papers in two hours because they were exactly as good as their exams. Um, 
So, um, all right, so then the final logistical question is, so what 48 hours would you like? And should there be a clip from 48 hours and then another clip from another, four, never mind. <laughs> um, when, when, do you want to, when do you want the 48-hour period to start? Do you guys have any druthers on that? Some of you will have, how many, have, how many people have like more than three exams in other courses? Three or more? Okay. Um, so you guys, how many raise their hands for three or more? Um, all right. So do you guys want this take-home exam? I mean, obviously you can do it at home. Do you want it um, early or late in the exam period? I don't know. It can be the last 48 hours of the exam period. Um, that would be late. That is, you would have to get it in the, what, what's the last day of exams? Anyone know? May 9th. Okay, so you could have from May 7th through May 9th, like 5 p.m. May 7th through 5 p.m. May 9th. Is that what people want? No. No. Earlier. Earlier. I think the start of the 6th. The 6th? May 6th? What about 72 hours from May 6th to 9th? Ooh. Ooh. No, it's radical. No, actually, if we're going to... Well, I'm going to send the exam out, and the point is not for you to be talking to your friends who say, oh, man, that was just such a sucky exam. I mean, the, the, can I talk about it with you? And it would be hard for you to say no if they needed help with, with their trauma over the exam. So you would have to talk to them, but then that would, you would feel bad about it, and I just don't want you to feel bad. So it's, that's really the issue. All right, 72 hours, is that okay with people? But don't we also have the final essay for that time? Yeah, so there is the final essay thing. So shouldn't we do the final exam like in the first half and then have the rest of the finals before yeah. we work on the essay? No, that's crazy. We do the paper, the video first, and get that out of the way, and then do the exam. Next, you know, you guys are making plans for the next time I teach this class because I'm not going to, this is the first time this class has been taught, so I'm trying to figure out the best way to teach it, and you guys are deciding. So, um, all right, do you want, how many people want the, want to do papers first, then the exam, and exam first, then papers? Yeah, I think exam first, then paper is probably a good idea, partly because um, often you actually get an idea for a paper from an exam, and that's a good thing in life. Um, um, okay, so how about if we said, yeah? Sorry, I'm just being radical. Uh, is it possible to have... The same 72 hours? <laughs> yeah. Is it possible that we could just kind of decide for ourselves whether we want to do the exam first or the essay first? Yeah. So, but, so basically, you can get the essay in. Those of you who've taken classes from me before, or in fact, a lot of you taking this class, know that I'm um, sort of ridiculously lenient about people being late. Um, like, I'm still getting papers from a course I taught two years ago. Um, <laughs> hi, Ollie. Um, you should talk to Matt, just mentioning. Um, so um, you can get your papers in, you know, when you need to get them in. But we'll do, what if we do the exams of 72 hours from May 6th through 9th or May 5th through 8th? How about we'll decide one of those, okay? How many people want May 6th through 9th? May 5th through 8th? <coughs> Looks like May 5th through 8th. Okay, so by, um, by sunset on May 5th, 
That gives you a couple of extra minutes because the sun sets two, uh, two minutes later each day. By sunset on May 5th, you will get the take-home exam. Um, by sunset on May 8th, which is 72 hours and maybe six minutes, you will um, return it. Uh, give yourself two hours plus whatever time you need to do some watching, but um, um, not to do extra reading. That is, the idea is do the reading you need to do before you start um, setting the clock going on the exam. Um, yeah? Is there a thing with seniors' grades needing to be in by May 5th? Yeah, there is, but it's a thing you can ignore. <laughs> I mean, you can ignore if you're me. <laughs> The registrar likes to get the senior grades in in time for the registrar to harass those of us who don't get the senior grades in in a kind of self-righteous way about where are those senior grades? We really need them. And um, he enjoys it. We enjoy it. <laughs> it's all good. You may not enjoy it because, you're, because the registrar is saying, you know, you're not going to graduate unless those senior grades are in. But it's, you know, they'll be in in time to graduate. When, what day is graduation? 18. Yeah, so really... The, the, the dirty secret is they have to be in by May 15th um, for you to graduate. That's the last day that the registrar uh, won't actually go crazy. Um, but it's fun to watch them go a little crazy. Um, mean but fun. Um, I kind of film it with a mirror, and then as he worries about the grades, I just kind of go in with a blank grade sheet. This is my segue into... <laughs> um, into peeping Tom. Okay, so what do we say May 5th through 8th? Yeah? What about what? If you're not a senior, um, you can have, I don't know, till the 18th if you absolutely need it. And if you are a senior, uh, the 14th at the absolute, absolute, absolute latest. How many people are seniors? Um, so one, raise them high, raise them high as, we, as they say in the Westerns. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, absolute latest for seniors if you, w if you want to graduate and if you need this course to graduate with. Um, now, I can't say May 14th. He would get so pissed at me. May 12th. Is that okay? Absolute latest for seniors, May 12th, which means if you take till May 14th, we'll work it out. But um, the deadline is May 12th, and um, after that, you should be anxious because that's fun, too. It's like recycling. It's important. Um, all right. <laughs> Um, we should so just to tell you, there is one more movie in this class next Tuesday, The Vanishing. And um, <laughs> why are you laughing? Because it's so scary. It's really scary. How many people have seen it? The original? Okay. Well, it's scary. Um, it's great. And um, yeah. I think the link is messed up because, uh, or the video is because the uh, audio and the visual don't. That's part of the really no, it isn't. Um, okay, so I'll talk to the library about that. Um, but it'll also be shown um, on next Tuesday night, and it's definitely a good movie to see on the big screen um, with other people being anxious next to you about what will happen. Um, so you should really try to see it um, Tuesday. Classes will be over. It'll be fun. Um, it'll be your last day of classes, and then a movie. What could be better? Um, so what that means is you can write about the vanishing, and what it also means is there's very likely going to be a question on the take-home about the vanishing. Um, so even though we won't get much of a chance to discuss it, although what I will say about it is that um, when you're watching it, um, you should be thinking about MacGuffins. 
um, and just how exactly scary a MacGuffin can turn out to be. Um, what happens when, when a MacGuffin becomes utterly terrifying, which is what happens in The Vanishing. Um, and um, other, otherwise, we won't really have much time to discuss it, but um, to the extent that you write about it, either in your papers or in your um, exam or both, um, it's, um, you'll get some um, interaction and some feedback about it. So uh, you should definitely... Um, think about it. Okay, so we what we have to talk about um, today and Tuesday is um, um, both Peeping Tom and some of the Freudian issues that we've started talking about, um, that we started talking about before vacation. Um, and in particular, where we were, I guess, I guess I'd like to talk about Peeping Tom today to the extent that it's still fresh <coughs> in your minds. Um, but where we were before vacation was talking about what Freud had to say about repetition. And if you read Instincts and their vicissitudes, and of course if you haven't, you simply must because that's bound to be on the take-home exam. Um, but if you've read Instincts and their vicissitudes and also the Fenichel piece on scoptophilia, um, you will see the extent to which some of the issues which Silverman and Laura Mulvey are talking about um, broader um, and different and um, in some ways less strange but in some ways stranger ways that they're being described um, not with respect to um, movie making but um, just with respect to human experience um, human visual experience um, but human experience in general um, if more particularly than that, than human sexual experience. And um, obviously the term scop um, scopophilia um, appears in Peeping Tom, the kind of goofy psych psychoanalyst, um, the, the, what's he called, the sneezer geezer? Um, everyone remember him? Um, he actually brings it up as um, an object of fascination when it turns out that Mark's father um, was interested in the, in scopophilia in the last um, at the end of his life. Why, by the way, is Mark named Mark? It's it's one of those like well, why not questions. But there is a slight pun in his name. Do you know why Mark Twain is named Mark Twain? Why? It's a it's a it's a um, riverboat measurement. Did, does everyone know that? So you know his real name is Samuel Clemens, right? Um, and the pen name that he took is Mark Twain. And um, Mark Twain is actually something that um, it's a measurement of how deep um, the part of the river you're in is. So it's the number of fathoms deep that a plumb line will tell you. Um, so what happens is the navigator has an assistant who's measuring how, um, whether the riverboat, the Mississippi is an extremely muddy river and the mud is always shifting, and it's very, very hard to navigate. And um, so in the 19th century, the riverboat navigators would just make sure they were going through channels that had a deep enough... Uh, were deep enough for um, the, the riverboats they were going through, so they would, they would drop plumb lines 
down to um, the bottom of the channel that they were in, and they would call how many fathoms they were, and they would say Mark 1, which is one fathom, Mark Twain, which is two fathoms, Mark 3, or maybe Mark Thrice, which is three fathoms, and so on. So uh, Mark, so since Clemens loved um, boasting about the fact that he worked on a riverboat, he called himself Mark Twain, the idea being that it wasn't obviously a technical term, um, but in fact was a technical term. If he called himself Mark I, it would have been much more obvious, or Mark III, it would have been much more obvious, or Marky Mark, it would have been a century too early. Um, but Mark Twain um, was something that people wouldn't know was necessarily not a real name, but it's not a real name. So Mark in Mark Twain um, means what? What does the word Mark there mean? Yeah? Yeah, so it's the mark on the stick is two fathoms there. Um, do you know why those things are called marks? Why when you mark something, or I mark a grade, or whatever, it's called a mark? It's actually from the word remark, um, or we have it in the word remark, and it means to observe, to see, to judge, to estimate, um, to evaluate. All of those things ultimately come from, um, from a word whose originally mean, original meaning is notice attentively, or simply notice. Um, mark me, mark what I say. That's a Shakespearean term. Um, Richard II, now mark me how I will undo myself, says Richard II in Shakespeare's play of the same name. We could call it Dick Twain instead of Richard II. Um, mark me how I will undo myself. Um, and um, so the, idea, the reason he's named Mark is that that's what he does, is he looks. He's a, he, he is always attentive to what it is that he can see, but it's also mark as in make a mark on something. Muhammad Ali used to talk about how his face was completely unmarked, but what Mark is doing is he's looking and he's injuring. He's looking and he is piercing. He is looking and he is scoring. Um, with the um, sharp point that comes with the camera. So the name Mark there is meaning both looking really intently, but also causing an impingement upon the object that he's looking at. Um, you all know that the word score means scratch, right? If you keep score, it's because you're scratching on a stick or on a slate or something like that. Um, that's, why score, uh, that's why you can score... Um, um, a cat will score your face um, if it's not declawed. Um, and it's not like, oh, yeah, you're about a 23. Um, <coughs> it's simply the marks made by the claws. So marking and scoring are similar that way. It means to look very carefully, to evaluate, but also to impinge upon, to break the surface of, which is what Mark does. Um, Helen... Maybe if you're going to pursue the question of names, Helen would be whom? Most famous Helen in literature? Yeah, pres presumably Helen of Troy, um, if you're really pushing it. Um, and um, the, with some of Helen's strangeness as um, a person who is capable of um, feeling sympathy 
for the man who's most dangerous to her. Um, and viv meaning life, um, and therefore the opposite of life when she's murdered. Um, so those are possible meanings for names, but the name Mark seems to be um, the most significant one. They make a lot of the names. That is when Mark first gives his name. Do you remember that? When Helen says, what's your name? And um, he says, he says, mark me um, in a kind of strange, in his kind of strange German accent. And then he kind of laughs in that nervous way he has. He says, Mark, Mark, that's my name. Um, but the point is, it's also pay attention to me. Um, okay, so um, Peeping Tom destroyed Michael Powell's career. <laughs> that's one of the, that's an interesting thing to know about it. Um, Powell and Pressburger were totally, the, uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger were a team that made a lot of fantastically great movies in England. Um, between, I think, the late 30s until 1960 when um, Michael Powell made Peeping Tom. Pressburger wouldn't help him with it. He thought it was just way too weird. Um, and he made Peeping Tom, and it, it um, opened him up to such um, vicious uh, criticism and um, assertions of his own perversity and his own... Um, awfulness that he couldn't make a movie um, after that. Um, Powell and Pressburger were both kind of rediscovered as fantastic movie makers in the um, late 70s or early 80s when they were still alive. Um, and they were much um, celebrated and feted then. Um, the most famous movie that they made together that some of you may have seen is The Red Shoes. Has anyone seen that? Um really wonderful movie about the about uh, making a ballet of the fairy tale of the red shoes um, and um, so I would strongly recommend that movie it also stars Moira Shearer um, they made a movie called Black Narcissus which is um, pretty amazing very famous um, and they made a movie Tales of Hoffman um, familiar to anyone well, these are all just unbelievably great, one-of-a-kind movies um, and really, really, really worth seeing. Um, in fact, oh, philosophy majors, um, I actually once had a conversation with Saul Kripke about um, the fact that they had made Tales of Hoffman, which he didn't know, but he loved that movie. Um, so if you want to see the same movie that Saul Kripke loved, you should see Tales of Hoffman um, by Powell and Pressburger. And really, it'll make you a great philosopher, just like that. Overnight, two hours, and you'll become a great philosopher. Um, so Tales of Hoffman is based on, do people know the, um, who Hoffman is? Or the opera, the Offenbach opera, Tales of Hoffman? Um, so what do you know about the opera? Okay. So E.T.A. Hoffman is, most, is famous for a story called The Sandman. Um, which is relevant here. Um, the Sandman is also a story that Freud wrote an essay about called The Uncanny. And um, The Sandman is about a young man named Nathaniel who makes the mistake of falling in love with a, wait for it, replicant, a robot. Um, the story is written in 1818, I believe it is, 1817, 1818. Um, and he falls in love with a mechanical doll that he doesn't know is a mechanical doll. Um, the mechanical doll is built by two people, one of whom is a very strange person named Coppelius, who is also the um, 
figure, the main figure in a ballet called um, called um, what is it, Capilla, Cap- Capilla, um, and Freud's essay about um, the Sandman. The Sandman is a really, really scary story, um, and Freud's essay about the Sandman is he's trying to figure out what's so scary about it. And what's so scary about it has to do with the relationship of looking to sexuality. Um, so this seems to be something that Powell and um, Pressburger, who is, as I say, his, his teammate in all this movie making, um, this is something that they were really, really interested in, the relation of vision to sexuality. And that's something that's um, obviously really interesting to Freud as well, as you can see from instincts and their vicissitudes. Okay, I think what we'll do is I want to say a little bit more about Freudian repetition. Um, this is what we were talking about um, just before vacation. Then let's talk about um, Peeping Tom, which I hope you thought was an amazing movie. Um, especially for a movie made in 1960. Um, and then um, we will get to start talking about um, the um, material on scopophilia, um, the psychoanalytic material on scopophilia, um, and that'll probably be our conversation both today and on Tuesday. Um, so what we, where we ended class before vacation, and I know it seems like forever ago, um, but where we ended class before vacation was talking about the nature and idea of repetition and what Freud had to say about repetition and what its relationship was to um, trauma on the one hand and general human desire and general human experience on the other hand. Um, so what one place to start with this, this is something that Freud um, says in Instincts and Their Vicissitudes and says in a lot of other places, and it's a very, very important idea in Freud, is Freud talks about um, the relationship of pleasure to unpleasure. And the basic idea in Freud is, and it's not in any way original to him, but the basic idea in Freud is that the motive for all um, animal action is to increase pleasure, or the incentive for all animal action is to increase pleasure. Um, This is obviously something that we're very familiar with. The reason that um, fruit is sweet um, is because it's good for us to eat fruit. Um, Sweetness is a pleasure. Um, and therefore, um, we have an incentive to eat fruit um, because that will cause pleasure and that will be good for us. The reason um, poison is bitter or poisonous substances are bitter is because they um, cause unpleasure, which is Freud's term, unpleasure. Um, and um, therefore, there's an incentive for us to stay away from things that are poisonous. Spoiled food tastes bad, and it tastes bad so that we won't eat much of it, so that if we, if we taste it, um, we'll stop eating it. Freud actually has an essay where he says all human judgment derives from the idea, if you're interested, and you should be, although, although kids today aren't, um, the name of this essay is called Negation, 
is just four pages long, and it's totally wonderful. In this essay, Negation, he says, all human judgment is originally a judgment, originally derives out of um, a necessary capacity that humans need in order to survive to decide whether or not to ingest something. The reason we talk about judgments of taste, O'Kantians, um, is because the very idea of taste is originally um, literal. Do you want to, you taste something to see whether you want to incorporate it, bring it into your body or not. Um, and that is the paradigm for all later judgment, says Freud, of any sort at all, is to weigh and consider something um, and then decide whether you will affirm it or deny it when it comes to whether you're eating something, it's will you swallow it or will you spit it out? We talk about swallowing lies, um, and what that means is we've misjudged something. We've believed something. We've swallowed it hook, line, and sinker because we were fooled into thinking that it was not noxious because um, of some pleasure-giving bait that was part of the hook, um, that, was, that the hook was baited with. Um, so that idea that pleasure is an incentive to all human action, that's an old idea, um, an, old, um, an old explanation for why we have an experience of pleasure, also an old explanation for why we have an experience of pain. Things are painful that we should avoid. Um, fire burns not only as a physical and chemical um, fact, but as a fact of sensation, because it's a good idea to avoid putting yourself in the position where the physical and chemical fact of burning will cause you harm. So you feel pain, and um, you shun fire. Um, so the idea is that there's a, there's, now Freud actually has a somewhat different theory of pain, so I'm simplifying here, but the idea is that there is pleasure and then there's the opposite of pleasure, which Freud calls unpleasure. And what Freud, you know, if you guys have read, how many people have read The Importance of Being Earnest or seen it? Um, well, in a way, the rest of you are extremely lucky because this is one of the great experiences of your life will be reading or seeing the importance of being earnest. Um, but at one point, um, um, uh, one character asks another, what, what brings you to London? And the other character says, what would make anyone do anything? Pleasure, of course. And the idea is that that's a tautology, um, that everything you do, you do to maximize pleasure or to minimize unpleasure. And the idea of maximizing pleasure, that seems, and this is, a, this is a big idea in Freud, that seems in conflict with another principle, which is what he calls the reality principle. That is, everyone who maximizes pleasure will find themselves in trouble. Any of you who are in trouble with credit card debt, you know what that means. That is, if you can't um, prevent yourself from um, seizing upon a pleasure when it offers itself to you, you will find that you will be unhappy 
later on and you will curse yourself for not showing more self-restraint and not showing more um, um, will control, more self-control. And, um, but Freud's idea is still, yeah, you don't have to maximize pleasure in the moment. The reality principle comes when you realize that maximizing pleasure at any given moment um, is going to yield you less pleasure over a mid-run or, or a long run. Um, you might, as they now as they now do these experiments with little kids to see who's going to grow up to be a criminal and who's going to grow up to be a lawyer, on the one hand, and who, um, where they'll offer a kid, do you guys know about this? You get an Oreo now, or if you wait 10 minutes, you can have two Oreos. And the kid who can't wait 10 minutes um, is uh, sent to reform school. Um, and the idea is that, of course, two Oreos... Ten minutes from now, um, one kid will have had one Oreo and one kid will have had two. Who's maximizing pleasure? The kid who gets two Oreos. Um, but in the immediate moment, the kid who has one Oreo maximizes the immediate pleasure, but the kid who shows self-restraint maximizes pleasure over the ten-minute period. So the reality principle is... I can get more pleasure in the long run if I show self-restraint. So it's still a pleasure principle, and that's Freud's term, is the pleasure principle and the reality principle. But the reality principle is a modification of the pleasure principle, a modification that with knowledge allows more pleasure in the long run than simply always going for what's pleasurable. If you think of this as a chess game, um, you shouldn't always take a piece that your opponent is offering um, because by taking that piece, you may go up by a bishop for one move, but you may lose your queen two moves later, and so you didn't maximize um, the value that you had in the chess game. So the idea of maximizing pleasure, I mean, econ majors, this is all obvious to you. Non-econ majors, it should still be obvious to you. The idea of maximizing pleasure sometimes requires you to understand that reality requires self-restraint. Now, Freud's original theory of pleasure, that is what's original to Freud, is that it's a mistake to think of pleasure as the positive term and unpleasure as some kind of deficit of pleasure. Life isn't like that, he says. Um, it's not like most of the time we're just feeling pleasure, but then sometimes something unfortunate happens, and for a few minutes we don't feel pleasure, but then we return to pleasure, and that's really great. Um, Freud very famously saw life as unpleasant. Um, he said the goal of psychoanalysis was to relieve the howling misery of neurosis in order to return the patient to the normal unhappiness of everyday life. Um, so Freud has a dark and pessimistic view of the world, but he still thinks you can make things better um, for some people than they necessarily are. So for Freud, the the basic idea for, in, for where pleasure comes from and how incentives work is that the main thing we experience is unpleasure 
and that pleasure is the relief that we get when unpleasure comes to an end. This is an idea that we talked about earlier. It's related to an idea that we talked about earlier when we were talking about room noise, which is when something turns off. Like if suddenly that fan turned off, we would hear silence and we would notice it. It would feel like a positive change, even though in fact it would be the absence of a sound, it would nevertheless feel like a sound. Um, that's a point that Nietzsche makes. Um, Freud takes that to be the fact about pleasure, that what happens is that desire builds up, a desire for something. Hunger builds up. You want food. Sexual desire builds up. You want some sort of sexual release. Thirst builds up. You want to drink something. And what's building up in all these cases is something like frustration that you, you're not getting what you need, not getting what you want, not getting what is building up in you as something that you do want. Um, you're tired and you want to go to bed, but you're on your feet and you can't. All of that is a buildup of unpleasure. And then you get what you need. And there is a momentary, or what at least is mainly a momentary experience of relief. Whether that relief is, oh my God, I'm finally um, drinking something, I was so thirsty, or I'm finally having sex, or I'm finally climaxing, or I'm finally getting to sit down. Um, there's a passage that Beckett is thinking about in his novel Murphy, um, where um, Murphy is, is exhausted and he sits down, and it just feels so good to sit down that he gets up to sit down again, and he's extremely disappointed that, that getting up and sitting down again just isn't the same pleasure as sitting down the first time was. And that's very familiar to us, that, oh, God, it's good to sit down. I think I'll get up and just feel that again. And you just don't. And that's Freud's point, that you can't get more pleasure by exhausting yourself, sitting down, getting up, sitting down again, getting up, sitting down again. That's what Murphy does. He does it three times, and it's just like, meh. And that's very, um, he's very disappointed by that. So Freud's idea is that an accumulation of mental energy, of agitation, of um, mental excitement is unpleasurable. That any kind of excitement is, is as a pure feeling, is unpleasurable. And that what pleasure is, is the relief that you feel when this excitement comes to an end. So you are excited or frustrated or needing to eat something. And then you do. And that's a pleasure. But the pleasure is that the frustration, the need, the hunger comes to an end. And that's why um, eating is only a pleasure for the first few bites and then it quickly loses its savor. Um, that's why all these pleasures are momentary, and that, for Freud, is the fact about human life. It's an important fact for thinking about how movies work, because movies also, narratives also, give you 
um, lots of anxiety followed by momentary resolutions, momentary pleasures when you get resolution to that anxiety, followed by further buildup. Um, any description of narrative structure. Um, how many people know what um, Freytag's triangle is? Is this something? No? You should look it up, Wikipedia. F-R-E-Y-T-A-G. Um, that's basically describes um, the structure of stories. It ultimately goes back to Aristotle, but it's a buildup of anxiety with relief followed by more anxiety, followed by another moment of relief, followed by more anxiety, followed by another moment of relief. Just think of the way um, climaxes in narratives are always very rapid. So you can have a buildup, a buildup, a buildup, and then a sudden revelation, and then we go on to the next episode. This happens in large and small scale um, on large and small scales. Uh, should I turn that corner? Walk, walk, walk. Music starts playing. Um, should I turn that corner? Turn the corner and, oh my god, a monster? And then you fight the monster. Or, oh, relief, there's nothing there. Um, relief, there's nothing there is mainly what happens because you can't be fighting monsters um, every 20 seconds. Um, and so what you get is 20 seconds of anxiety followed by a half second of relief, followed by another buildup of anxiety, followed by another quick relief. And that rhythm of storytelling, where the anxiety builds up over a much longer period than the relief relieves you or resolves that anxiety, the buildup is always narratively much longer than the resolution. Source code is, again, an example of this, that each time we go through um, the train ride, um, there's build-up, 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 and then quick resolution at the end of the, quote, eight minutes, unquote, um, followed by, okay, now you have to do it again. Build-up, 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 followed by quick resolution, and then you do it again. Um, so Freud's idea then, this is important um, in general in Freud, is that unpleasure is builds up all the time. It has to do with our relationship to our environment. We look for relief from unpleasure, and we get it, but then immediately we have to be on the alert again. Um, immediately we are once again noticing the buildup of unpleasure. So that is, I think, you know, a pretty interesting theory. Um, but it's not the point of um, bringing it up in this case. The point is that during, the, during and after the Great War, Freud and a lot of his colleagues, um, and a lot of psychiatrists who were not his colleagues, um, were obsessed with what we now call PTSD, PTSD, um, and um, what um, at the time was called shell shock. And what <coughs> shell shock was, was that people who came back from the trenches, people who were injured in the trenches, people who had limbs blown off in the trenches, people whose buddies were killed right next to them in the trenches, 
would come back. Any of you, if any of you have read um, Mrs. Dalloway, you'll know the character Septimus Warren Smith is the figure in that book who is suffering from shell shock. Um, and Wolf, of course, had read Freud, so she's partly thinking about Septimus um, through the lens of Freud. Um, that what happened was people would come back from horrendous traumatic experiences and they would keep re replaying them in their minds, these traumatic experiences. They would keep replaying them. Rather than putting, putting those experiences behind them, which is what all their well-meaning um, concerned loved ones would say is, well, yes, it was terrible, but you really must put it behind you now. Um, they wouldn't put it behind them. They would keep having nightmares about what had happened. They would keep repeating what had happened. Um, and this idea of repetition, repeating the moment of trauma over and over and over again, that's what Freud wanted to try to understand. Why this repetition? Um, here, again, you know, I, as, as I've said before, I think Groundhog Day is the deeper movie between Groundhog Day and Source Code. But here again, you can see that Source Code is about that moment of trauma repeated over and over again, the moment that the bomb goes off. So why the repetition of the bomb going off? That's what Freud is literally asking. Why do people keep repeating in their memories the moment that the bomb goes off? Um, so Freud's book on this subject is the book called Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And the idea is it's clear that the bomb going off and repeating this moment of trauma that no theory of pleasure can in any obvious way explain why this moment of maximum unpleasure, of just the thing that you should be fleeing, should be something that people keep going back to in their minds. Now, at the beginning of Instincts and Their Vicissitudes, Freud gives a really interesting theory of the motivating power of instinct in ways that are connected to what we've just been um, talking about, which is that in the world, what happens is our attention, our anxiety, our vigilance, our alertness is stimulated by danger of some sort or other, um, stimulated by something that we would like to avoid. Um, you see a car coming, barreling at you, and what you do is you get out of the way. Um, this, in its simplest form, is the reflex arc. Um, the reflex arc is if someone um, uh, kicks your knee, you will kick back. Um, that's, not, that's not the main reason that we have a reflex in our knee, but it is a reason um, that there's a reflex in your knee. Um, some of you know, how many of you, how many of you know what happens if um, a baseball heads right at your eye? Well, you all know, right? What happens? Bigger. <laughs> it gets bigger, yes. Plus you blink. Um, uh, it's actually an interesting fact that there's a reflex arc in the eye so that even if the um, optic, optic nerve is cut, 
I think it's if the optic nerve is cut. Even if you're even if you're blind, not because your eye isn't working, but because the relation of your eye to the visual cortex in your brain um, has been um, interrupted, you will still blink if a fist or a baseball comes towards your eyes. Um, that's a reflex arc. Your eyes will blink even if your brain isn't seeing. Um, if your eyes aren't seeing, they won't blink. But if if you're blind, but not because of some damage to your eyes, but because of damage further back in the visual system, your eyes will blink when something comes towards them. And the reason is self-protective. There's a danger, and there's a reflex to avoid that danger. Um, if someone um, throws something at you, you'll duck. And what Freud is basically saying is that our response to the world is one in which everything we do is designed to ward off danger, to ward off, is, is initially, the most important thing we can do is to ward off danger. Um, so danger presents itself to us as something agitating and exciting in the bad sense of exciting. Um, that is not, oh, this is so exciting, I'm glad, but, um, oh, my neurons are excited because um, there's some danger coming here that I have to deal with. And so the idea in Freud is that our relation to the external world is one in which unpleasure increases with the idea of danger. As something becomes dangerous to us, we become more alert, more anxious, more fearful, um, more engaged. Um, our mental resources are all churning within us. All of this is unpleasure. Um, and a sign of the danger that the thing can cause us is the unpleasure we're already feeling as that danger approaches. We then do something. We duck. We exhale. We inhale. Whatever we do, we do something to avoid this thing, and then the unpleasure is lifted. We feel um, better. Um, sometimes we'll feel like, whoa, wow, that was close, and that'll feel good um, because it'll be the sudden lifting of a buildup of unpleasure. Yeah? So how come like, there are people who really enjoy watching a horror film if it causes just like, seeming constant unpleasure? Well, that's, that's really the question. Um, and it's actually a question to ask yourself while you're watching The Vanishing. Um, there's actually an interesting book about this called The Philosophy of Horror, which is basically about horror films. Um, but they're, well, do people want to take a stab at it? I mean, I think you can call Peeping Tom is close enough to a horror film that you can use that as your example if you want. Um, why, do, why do any of you enjoy horror films? Or do you not? No one does? Yeah. Uh huh. Which is not my experience. Yeah. So she's, but would, does she like watch horror films alone? Yeah, and she's like, she kind of, I don't know, it's weird. She really likes them, but she kind of, she's like, oh, I know it's all fake, so it's okay. So I think she enjoys the filmic aspect of it. I'm not really sure. Okay. Um, I can, there is, you know, one thing is people can see that horror films are fake. And that's a way of giving themselves relief. That is, oh my God, it's so scary, but catch up, I know, ha ha, I'm not fooled. 
And what that means is, well, I was starting to get fooled, but I was also able to turn off my anxiety as soon as I wanted to. Um, so that could be one possible example, that in a horror film, part of you is actually experiencing the anxiety, but another part of you is then able to turn it off um, when you need to. And that can then feel like it's a buildup of unpleasure and then relief. And um, the better you get at it, the more, um, um, the more you can count on that relief. That might be one um, that might be one answer. Does anyone have that experience of horror movies? Of like, it's getting scary, but now I'm just going to laugh at it, and then I'll feel better. Um, you do have that experience. Sort of. I mean, I feel like going into it knowing it's a horror film makes it really easy to do that, but I feel like that doesn't explain experiences where you enjoy the horror and not experiencing it. Uh-huh. So, do you have an example? I mean, if you go in with expectations knowing it's going to be a horror film, like I don't know Saw movies, I feel like you can change your reaction to it. Yeah. But if you're kind of watching the movie, and then all of a sudden somebody jumps out at you, I feel like you can't really prepare yourself or really, like, reverse psych yourself out for the instance of horror. Uh-huh. So I think preparation definitely has a way, like, of influencing you. Yeah, so, but, so do you ever enjoy horror movies where you're not expecting it? I mean, I feel like I'm way more likely to, like, jump and make some sort of noise if I'm not expecting it, but... Yeah, and is that good or bad? Probably bad. It'd be really embarrassing. But, like, I feel like I'd enjoy it more if I can, like, prepare myself and be like, it's just a horror film. Okay, so that, that's like Jay's friend also. That is that if you know it's a horror film, yeah. that is, and you're prepared for it and you're set for it, um, then you're fine. Um, because, and probably that's because you can, to use Coleridge's famous phrase, there's the voluntary suspension of disbelief, but it's voluntary. And so whenever you want to stop suspending disbelief, you can. I think that's also kind of why horror films can like, get away with and actually oftentimes are intentionally predictable. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, good. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think that explains it an okay amount, because also if, because if I experience horror in real life, I'm definitely not expecting it, and I don't enjoy that, but I do like watching horror films, and like, even in movies where I don't expect it to happen, the fact that it's a movie still prepares me somewhat for it. Uh-huh. Yeah, so there might be like a, a little bit of a stutter step there, which is even if you're not expecting it, and there can be this, oh no, I really didn't want this, um, but then, but in fact, you know, I can walk out if I want, and um, there's also, I think another aspect of it which is related is, um, and this, this goes to your talking about being embarrassed, is oh my god, look at all these other idiots, they're scarier than I am, I'm actually pretty brave, well that's good, I'm not an idiot like them, and that's a pleasure too. So part, I think, that's why I asked whether your friend watches them alone, because often for people, part of the pleasure of horror movies is um, both a communal pleasure of being scared with everyone else, but also the um, necessary flip side of that communal pleasure which is um, just getting to watch everyone else be scared and to feel like maybe you're more in control of your feelings than they are of theirs. Um, and, you know, everyone at some point in a horror movie is the least scared person there because everyone at some point in a horror movie has decided enough, 
while everyone else is still really scared. So there's a kind of wave, you know, like when you do the wave at Fenway Park, there's a kind of wave of different people being scared shitless at different moments and other people enjoying the fact that they're not the ones scared shitless at that moment. Um, and that's a pleasure too, I think. Um, yeah. I think I'm not a fan of horror movies, but I recently saw uh, Sunshine, uh, which starts off as a sci-fi drama and then in the third act suddenly becomes a horror movie. Uh-huh. Um, and I thought it was awesome because uh, for one thing, like the whole point of movies is to make us feel something or think something. Yeah. It's incredible what it can do. Yeah. And also because it drew me in and it forced me to watch a genre I didn't want to watch. Yeah. And I wouldn't put it down. Uh-huh. Um, I told you guys about seeing Repulsion um, when I was an undergraduate. And the... Um, guy who, as I say, it was a totally full auditorium at the start, and there were about 15 of us really cool, brave souls at the end. Um, but after what really was the scariest scene in Repulsion, it was maybe it looked like there was going to be another scene just as scary as the scariest scene, which was utterly scary. Um, this guy left, and as he left the auditorium, he just yelled, why are you doing this to yourselves? Why? 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 So he felt great because he wasn't the completely mindless idiot just watching this terrible thing that was happening to us. So he felt really good just, just rebuking us and jeering at us for watching this horror movie. And we felt really good because we could take it, and he couldn't. In fact, he had to leave screaming um, his unhappiness about how scared he was. So everyone won. He won because he wasn't the idiot that we were putting ourselves through this, and we won because we were watching the whole movie, which he couldn't do. Um, so it was a win-win situation. Um, and I do think that's one aspect of horror movies is they really do feel like win-wins for everyone in the audience. Um, you get to feel superior. At some point, you get to feel superior to everyone else, no matter what that superiority consists in. And yeah, that's, that's a relief of unpleasure. You get agitated by the fact that you're a normal person, but then, whoa, I get to be superior. And for a few seconds, you get to be superior. Uh, did you, yeah? Say it again. Yeah. Yeah. Realized and then survived. Um, catharsis literally means purgation. Um, everyone knows the word from Aristotle. That is that um, in the poetics, not the part that you read, but but in the poetics. Um, Aristotle defines tragedy as a build-up of pity or terror in the audience. That is the so so it does have to do with horror movies. That there are two things that there are two possible responses you can have in tragedy. You can feel pity for a character, or you can feel terror. Um, terror is obviously a first-order emotion in a way that pity isn't quite. Um, I know that's arguable, but let's say as a first approximation. Terror is a first-order emotion. I'm scared, whereas pity is like, she's scared, and I feel sorry for her. Um, and um, tragedy, says Aristotle, is an experience in the, the audience has an experience of pity or terror, followed by, to use his famous word, a catharsis, where we no longer have that feeling, um, where that feeling is 
relieved, where we are released from that feeling, and that's the pleasure that tragedy gives, is an experience of pity or terror calmed, ended. Um, And um, the word catharsis is a medical term that Aristotle is using, and he uses it in other places um, in in its perfectly medical meaning, and what it means is purgation. Catharsis is if you're sick, you take some ipecac or you take some other substance that will either make you puke or make you poop. It's the poop and puke theory. And then you'll feel better because whatever was feeling so bad in you, whatever you ingested that you shouldn't, you've now gotten rid of. So once again, it's the idea of ingesting the wrong thing and then getting rid of that thing that you ingested that was causing you unpleasure. So the feeling of unpleasure relieved is for Freud and probably for Aristotle, although he didn't explicitly analyze it that way, the feeling of the relief of unpleasure, of agitation, of disturbance, Maybe that's the best word, not excitement, but disturbance. Um, The feeling of a relief of disturbance, that's what pleasure is. Um, In tragedy and for Freud in life itself. Um, So you're purged of this disturbance, and then you feel better. You feel calm of mind. Okay, so just to continue then, so Freud wants to know why, and this is related to this question of, um, of horror, why do people repeat these terrible and unpleasurable situations? Why do they go over them in their minds over and over and over again? Now, in Instincts and Their Vicissitudes, he has this idea of an instinct better translated as a drive, and um, the later, more... Um, unauthorized, but in this case probably more accurate translations of Freud, use the word drive for Freud's German word, which is treib, um, and which is cognate with drive. Um, the idea is that we have drives within us to do certain things. Um, in particular, we have a drive to reproduce. Um, but we have various instincts within our minds, various drives within our minds, which are also causing us to behave in certain ways, just as the reflex arc causes us to behave in certain ways when we confront things outside of us. So you confront something outside of you, um, and it causes a reaction. And what that reaction is supposed to do is put an end to the confrontation that caused it. A baseball comes whizzing at you, and you duck. Um, You... um, Um, stumble into um, a a burning bush and um, you step back and take your sandals off. Um, And in those cases, what happens is there's something in the outside world, you respond to it, that response puts an end to the thing or aims to put an end to the thing that's a danger. Instincts, however, are within the mind and therefore you can't escape them because wherever you go, they come with you. You can run away from a monster, an external monster, but you can't run away from an internal monster. You can um, meet an external um, need, but you can't in the same way put an end to an internal need. 
So Freud says that we have these instincts that often the only way to cope with them, especially if we're not supposed to be having them, and this is where the idea of repression comes in, often the only way of coping with them is to somehow distort them into something else from what they are and then try to cope with their dis- with the distorted version of the instinct. So again, and here's the part where a lot of people just say, ah, Freud, he's disgusting, he should wash his mouth out with soap, which is what Mel Brooks says about him. Um, but a typical example in Freud, or the typical example in Freud, is that all your sexual choices are based on your parents. Um, that whenever you um, want to have sex with someone, it's in some way a desire to have sex with one of your parents. And um, that that is so horrifying an idea, and yet so inescapable an <coughs> idea, that what you do is you distort your sex- sexual object, and you may also distort your sexual aim, those are different things, but you distort who or what you really want to have sex with so that someone else can play the role that um, was originally played by the parent. And that um, is a good thing. That's important um, that you find someone else besides your parent to have sex with. Um, It's important. But it also means that um, no sexual relationship you ever have will be entirely satisfying. Um, because the person you're having the sexual relationship with won't be your parent. Um, And so that non-satisfaction comes from the fact that instincts are internal, that you can't ever get away from them. All you can do is deal with them in certain ways and cope with them in certain ways. So to be alive, forgetting now the sexual aspect of this, the idea in Freud is to be alive is to be disturbed, um, to have a disturbance within your mind, which is what consciousness is. Consciousness is always an attempt to get beyond the present moment, to resolve, to um, deal with, to um, cope with the present moment and get to the next moment. So to be alive is to be experiencing unpleasure always. And so if what pleasure is, is the dissipation or the resolution or the ending of the energy of unpleasure, then there is only one absolute hope for us, which is death. And that is where Freud gets the idea of what he calls the death instinct. So the death instinct is a desire that we have to die, a desire that all organisms have to die, because to be alive is to be agitated, and what our goal as living beings always is, is to reduce agitation, always. So to die, to sleep, no more. And by asleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to would be a consummation devoutly to be wished. And I think that was kind of well said. But to sleep, perchance to dream, yes, yup, 
There's the rub. Yep. Uh-huh. That's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come must give us pause. But the idea is that if, it's, if the reason you don't kill yourself is because you might dream when you die, um, is a way of seeing that you might still, that death which promises the end of agitation doesn't, might not. You might still be agitated. But Freud's idea then is that there is, since all of life is a desire to reduce the energy load on your mind, all of life ultimately is headed towards death and desires death, but doesn't desire trauma because trauma is, in fact, highly energizing. So what Freud says is every organism wants to die, but wants to die in its own way, wants what John Keats called easeful death. And easeful death means coping with trauma, not trying to get away from um, something which, which threatens death, but trying to ease into death. So, the, so Freud's explanation of repetition in post-traumatic stress, in shell shock, Freud's explanation of repetition is that it's the attempt of the repeater, of the person repeating the experience, to gain control of it. That is, here is this terrible thing that happened in which I was completely out of control of my world, mental, physical, emotional, in every way. The world that I lived in was completely out of my control. But the more I go over it again and again and again, the more I can try to make it mine, to repeat it as a way of coming to control it, which is what I found interesting about your friend's um, reaction to horror, which is I experience it, but then I control it. Then I draw back. Freud has a famous example of what's called the Fort Dog game, which again is something you may come upon from time to time in your reading, the Fort Dog game. Um, in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, there's a, a really interesting moment where he talks about um, having able to spend some time with um, a young boy who had a little toy on a string and the boy would always do the same thing with the, with the toy, which is that he would toss it away from him and he would say, fort, which in German means gone. And then he would pull it back, and he would say, da, which means there. So it's just a little kid doing a kind of yo-yo thing. Gone, back, gone, back. But being Freud, he wanted to know, why is the child doing that? And he realized that um, what the child was doing was responding to the fact that he was upset that his mother would disappear from time to time. Because when she went away, he would also say, Fort, gone. And then she would come back, and he would be pleased. But he couldn't control her comings and goings. But with the toy, he could. So by using the toy, he could say, oh, this toy, it's gone. Ah, but look, I'm bringing it back. So it was a game of repetition, just gone, back gone back, but a game of repetition which, in which the child was gaining control of this unhappiness, the toy is gone, 
which he could then repeatedly bring back. And that bringing of it back was a way of him finding resolution. Freud then goes on to say in a kind of aside, um, later the boy's mother died, um, and um, I talked to him about this stuff later. What he doesn't say, but what the footnotes say, is that the, is that the boy was his grandson and the mother was his daughter. Um, and it's a very strange little anecdote that he tells about the death of his own daughter, which he somehow simply assimilates into psychoanalytic theory. Um, when you know that, it becomes a very moving passage. Um, this is all relevant to vertigo, which is also about seeking to die through repetition and to die as easily as possible. So that seems to be first what Madeline is doing in going back to Carlotta and becoming obsessed in this kind of trance state with what Carlotta is doing. And then it becomes what um, um, Jimmy Stewart is doing to Judy um, as Judy. By the way, did you see Kim Novak was in the news this week? Um, well, look her up. Um, so that idea that repetition is allied with death, that's a deeply Freudian idea that you can see playing out in a movie like Vertigo as well as in a movie like Source Code, um, but that you can see playing out in a movie like Vertigo. Um, and it's worth noticing for that reason. Now, when we get to um, Peeping Tom, um, we get to one of the sexual instincts, which is the instinct called scopophilia. And there, Freud has really interesting things to say about where the love of looking comes from. And obviously, um, Powell has read Freud um, and is thinking about these issues. But the first thing to notice, and the last thing we'll notice in class today, but the first thing to notice is that the puzzle, and we talked about this a little bit before break, the puzzle um, for Freud, maybe for anyone um, interested in human sexuality, um, the puzzle is the puzzle of voyeurism. It makes sense for obvious evolutionary and biological reasons, and Freud begins the SN instincts and their vicissitudes by pointing this out. It makes sense that um, there's a sexual instinct in all sexually reproducing organisms, um, from yeasts to humans. Um, if there isn't a sexual instinct, people won't have sex. And if they're sexually reproducing, or animals, organisms won't have sex. If they're sexually reproducing, um, organisms, but they don't have sex, they won't reproduce, with some minor exceptions that need not concern us here. Um, so the sexual instinct is an instinct um, which makes people desire to have sex with each other, makes organisms desire to have sex with each other, um, builds up excitement, which then turns into pleasure um, in sexual relief. Um, so that's, there's, not, there's really nothing at all controversial about saying that. Um, the question is, where does voyeurism come from? Where does pornography come from? Why would some people rather watch than 
do? Why um, is the porn industry such a big industry? What is the pleasure of watching? Why isn't it rather the very opposite of a pleasure, which is seeing what you don't get, seeing what you're not having? Um, why should pornography be something that people spend time and money on when, um, from some purely rational point of view, um, you wouldn't say, well, I'm really hungry, so I think I'm going to go online and watch people eating because, you know, I'm just hungry. I love to be watching people eat. Um, quite the reverse. If you're hungry and you don't have access to food, the idea of watching other people eat isn't going to give you pleasure. It's going to make, you, um, it's going to make things feel worse. Um, if you're thirsty, you're not going to be wanting to watch people drink. Watching people drink may make you thirsty. That's the theory of be beer commercials. Um, you know that you're not allowed to drink in a beer commercial, in alcohol commercials. Um, so the whole point about a beer commercial is to frustrate um, the audience's desire um, to imagine drinking so that they actually get you thirsty. Um, but generally, when we want something, watching others get it isn't particularly pleasurable. Um, but somehow watching other people have sex is pleasurable for a whole lot of people. And that's a puzzle, um, or should be a puzzle, why that is. The solution to the puzzle, the obvious first solution to the puzzle is, okay, it allows you to fantasize about what would happen if I were doing that, that would be great. But you can fantasize without watching. Um, and again, the question might be, why, does, why is fantasy a pleasure when the idea should be actually having sex is a pleasure. The better you are at fantasizing, the more you might be able to forego actually having sex, and the less likely that there will be reproduction of the species. So why fantasy? Why voyeurism? Why pornography? Why are those things that give people pleasure rather than the opposite? That's the question that Freud is asking himself um, at the beginning, among other places, at the beginning of instincts and their vicissitudes. And I think he comes up with pretty brilliant answers that we will try to talk about through talking about Peeping Tom on Tuesday. Have a good weekend. Bye. Is it time? Yes, one minute too long. Yes. Yeah. I'm thinking about doing a project for my own 